Well, good morning, church. Man, it's so good to be with you this morning. You know, something that I've toyed around with this week is just this idea that um, all of us, if we're human beings, if we're uh, here and we're uh, allowing the air to, to fill our lungs, is that all of us, regardless of our age, regardless of where we grew up, uh, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our financial situation, uh, that all of us have a propensity, uh, we have a desire, uh, it is easy for us to sin. I know that because I have children. I didn't teach them to sin. I didn't teach them to disobey. I didn't say, now, Simon, uh, when you really want to make your mom mad, this is what you want to do. I didn't teach them to uh, to go about and, and do the wrong thing. And yet all of us, uh, without exception, uh, can all say uh, that at some point or another, the temptation to disobey, to willfully do the wrong thing, has gotten the best of us. Wouldn't you say? We could all say that. I mean, we could all raise our right hand. We could uh, place our left hand on the Bible, and we could swear to the fact that, that all of us have willfully disobeyed something we knew to be wrong. The Bible calls that sin. And we know that sin comes about usually because we have been tempted in some way. Maybe we've been tempted uh, because we want more power. We want some level of control. Um, we, we desire something. Paul's going to tell us about temptation much later in the Bible. He's going to tell us uh, that, that nothing has seized us except what is common to man. No temptation has come upon us except that which is uh, common to everybody. Meaning, all the way back from Adam and Eve until now, uh, the temptations that have existed all come to all of us. And there are temptations that, that perhaps you struggle with, and there's temptations that I struggle with, and, and sometimes all of us at some point along the way have, have come and we've desired one of those temptations and we have acted on it. In the book of James, it's going to say this really crazy, powerful thing about our desires and about our sin, about our temptation. Talking about that, he says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to more sin and sin. And when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. When we, when we act According to temptation, when we give in, it, it just seems to snowball. Sin gives birth to more sin. Uh, disobedience gives birth to more disobedience. And all of us could say, all of us could wear the t-shirt, been there, done that. Because the Bible tells us that everybody has sinned. Now, we've been in this series, Pressure Points, and we've said, hey, if we're going to be a church, if we're going to be focused on helping people find and follow Jesus, then we need to follow Jesus. Then those of us who have pledged our lives, uh, who have uh, entered into the baptistry, who have died to the old self and risen again to live a new life in Jesus, then we have to follow Jesus. 
And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means that we have to understand and respond properly when it comes time when the pressure is really on. That's what this whole series has been all about. Hey, pressure points. Uh, when life comes calling, how are you going to respond? And this morning, we have to deal a little bit with our own temptations. We have to deal with our own sins. We have to deal with those willfully disobedient acts that sometimes we do. And we have to recognize, church, that sin is serious. There are no little white sins. That sin has consequence. And sometimes, one moment may lead to a lifetime of destruction. That sometimes a single sin, a single thing done wrong, a single act of dis disobedience, a, a single thing of willful acting against what God would have us to do can sometimes have devastating effects for the rest of our life. And so this morning we're going to look at a time in David's life where this great guy, this guy that Scripture calls a man after God's own heart, the king who had done so much right, who had acted so godly so many times, gives in to temptation and willfully disobeys God. And I want you to see this morning the seriousness of sin. I want you to see the consequence of sin. But I also want you to see that if your life this morning is caught in a sin, that if this morning if you walked in and you have been tempted and you have acted on that temptation and, and, and you're thinking about the consequences of what might happen, that there is an action that you can take. There is something that you can do if you're interested in that, I want you to turn with me this morning. And we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Reach out and grab one in the pew back in front of you. And we're going to be in the front part of the Bible called the Old Testament. Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth if you're flipping through those pages, and then you're going to get to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and we're going to be in chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're surprised, aren't we? If we have come this far through uh, really 1 Samuel and now into 2 Samuel, uh, we have been uh, just expecting that David is going to do all the right things all the time, aren't we? 
I mean, just about all the time, David seems to be making all the right decisions. I mean, even when he's uh, almost killed by someone who uh, desires to have his life more than once, David responds kindly. He responds with grace. And we just have become accustomed to David doing the right thing, except this time he doesn't do the right thing. We're told that, that this is a time... David stays home and his army goes away. Now, we don't know exactly why David decides to stay home. All sorts of commentators and scholars argue back and forth that maybe there's a a significant meaning to the fact that David stays and everybody else goes. But, uh, But the text never really tells us. What we do know is that David's probably around 50 years old. And the time of the rainy season in Israel has ended. You see, if you were going to go to war, uh, you didn't do it in the rainy season because when it rains, what happens to the ground? It gets muddy. That's right. Nobody wants to have a war in the mud because you can't have any good footholds. And so the time for war had ended. It was kind of in the springtime. Oh, the ground has started to, uh, to, to dry up. It's much more firm, and uh, they can get the animals and the chariots and all the other machinery. They can get the people out into the space where they need to be, and it's time for war again. And the battle that was started in 2 Samuel chapter 10 with the Ammonites can now resume. The problem is that David's not with them. The great warrior of all of Israel is not with his army. Instead, he says, hey, Joab, go out. Uh, you You go ahead without me, and you take care of the Ammonites. Read with me, would you? From chapter 11 and verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why, but it seems a little fishy. It seems like something's not quite right with this great King David. It seems like uh, something inside of David is churning, like, uh, like there's unrest. We're not clear. Why would this great warrior not go? It doesn't seem like David has very much going on. It seems like he can take afternoon naps. Like maybe he's thinking about early retirement, and so he goes and he takes a nap, and we're finding that he he decides after he's all refreshed, he doesn't have anything on his docket, he's got no other things, kingly duties that he's got to do right now, and he walks out onto his roof. And when he does, Something catches his eye. Actually, someone catches his eye. Read with me, would you, in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now, this woman is likely naked. And he saw her. And I want you to notice what the Bible tells us about this woman. The woman was very beautiful. Now, the Bible doesn't very often tell us about the physical appearance of other people. Uh, Sometimes it will name them. Uh, Sometimes it will say, there's this woman. 
There was a woman bathing, but the Bible takes extra steps. It takes up extra words to say, this woman was very beautiful. It means that she's a knockout, okay? She's a sensation. She is gorgeous. She is an incredibly beautiful woman. And David decides... Right then and there, he has a decision to make. It's obvious that as he stands on his roof and he looks over the city, and he had no intention probably of seeing this woman, but he does, and he has a decision to make. There's this very beautiful woman, and what is he going to do? There's a shot of adrenaline, and he thinks, I can either lust And I can cultivate that lust or I can crush it. If you've heard this story before, you probably know what David decides to do. He decides to cultivate that lust a little more. And he goes back into his chamber and he calls his servant over and he says, Hey, I want you to find out who that is. I want you to find out where she lives and who she belongs to. And I want you to hear who she is. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Verse 3, though, that's really where I wanted to go, not verse 4, I'm sorry. And David sent someone out to... To find out about her, the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now to you and I, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, that probably means nothing except for this. If you were to do some little research, if you were to look up Eliam and you were to look up Uriah, you find something very significant about these two men. Eliam and Uriah are both named in David's mighty men. They're both named. Now you're thinking, okay, so what? Mighty men, that sounds like warrior talk. Uh, Think about a president with a secret service. Uh, Think about... Think about David having his SEAL Team 6. Think about the Green Berets or the Delta Force, okay? This is David's secret service. This is his special ops. These are the guys that he's going to call when the, the battle gets the toughest. These are the guys that he's going to send in. These are the guys that are going to be with him. They're going to have his detail, okay? Okay? Eliam and Uriah are both among the number of David's mighty men. He knew these people, which means he knows Bathsheba. He knows who she is. It's entirely likely that David has seen her, that he knows her, that perhaps he was even at the wedding. Are you with me? It could be that when David has his mighty men together, that he has had them over to his palace, that they have eaten at his table. 
This is God giving David a tremendous opportunity. Do you see it? He can either crush this lust right now or he can cultivate it. He has sent out a messenger to find out who this very beautiful woman is. And the messenger comes back and goes, uh, a lion, Uriah? They're related with her or them. She is related with them. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, David? And David is so blind. He is so lustful that he continues to cultivate the lust instead of crush it. This temptation is right there before him. He's given an out, but he doesn't take it. And so then, verse 4, it, it, it's so cold. Verse 4 is so unbelievably cold, there are no words spoken between David and Bathsheba. This is a power-hungry man seeking to fulfill his sexual desire. If there is one thing we find about David, it is that throughout his life, the one thing that he seems to not do well is his relationships with women. And he decides to misuse his power to have this woman. And I thought it was interesting. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you look at Adam and Eve and the first sin, they come along and Satan presents something before them. He presents a temptation before them. And the language used in Genesis 3 is almost identical with that of David. He saw, he desired, he took. Listen to the coldness of verse 4. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, he slept with her, and she went back home. As far as David was concerned, this was a one-night stand. It was a power-hungry man with a lustful desire. Go home. You're done. I'm done with you. And as far as David was concerned, that was it. He was going to live with this secret. Uriah was off to war. All of his mighty men were where they should have been. But not David. And David probably walks, maybe thinking about the consequences, maybe thinking in his conscience what he has done. But most likely, David thinks, I'm free and clear. That is, until she says, I'm pregnant. Now she's afraid. And he's afraid. At that time, you could be killed. You could be stoned to death, regardless of whether or not you were the king for committing adultery. 
And David knows this, so he hatches this tactical plan. I mean, he's a great military leader. He can have a tactical plan, so he does what maybe perhaps many of us would desire to do when we're right in the throes of sin, when we're right in the middle of willful disobedience. I'm going to try and hide it. I'm going to try and cover it up. I'm going to try and shut the lights out on it. I'm going to try and make sure it goes on the beaten path so that no one will ever know. And if you read through the rest of chapter 11, you know exactly what David decides to do. He hatches this magnificent plan. And so he calls for Uriah out on the battlefield, and Uriah has to come in the 30 or 40 miles, and he, and, and he says, hey, Uriah, how's it going, man? How's the battle? Of course, David doesn't care how the battle's going. He's trying to cover his tracks. And he says to Uriah, hey, how's it going? I hope the battle's going well. Why don't you go home with your wife? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But Uriah, the craziest thing about Uriah, his name means Yahweh or God is light. And true to his name and to his character, Uriah says, how can I, while all of everybody else is fighting, how in the world could I possibly Go home with my wife. And he sleeps there with David's servants at the doorway to the palace. And David hears about it, and he knows that his plan isn't working. And so he decides to say, hey, Uriah, why don't you spend a few more days? Why don't you spend a little more time? Come, why don't you eat with me tonight? And we're told that David decides that he's going to get Uriah so drunk that there's no way he could possibly resist his very beautiful wife, and David will be in the clear. Nobody will know the better. Everything will be good. And David is trying to hide. He is trying to cover up. He is trying to put darkness where it seems light is. But there's only one problem. Uriah doesn't go now, there's scholars that believe that Uriah thinks he knows what's up. Uh, some people say that Uriah is wise to what David is doing, which is why he doesn't go home. I don't know. But either way, Uriah doesn't go home. Now, you, you might think that instead of taking the next step, this godly guy... This man after God's own heart, we would almost expect him, wouldn't we, to call Uriah back and be like, Uriah, I've got something to tell you. We would almost expect David to begin to confess his sins to Uriah. Hey, look, this is what happened. This is awful. I can't believe I've done this, but this is it. To have it out to repent, to say, I, I, I need something else. This is too much. But David doesn't. Instead, he goes another step. He says, I just have to continue to hide. I have to continue to burrow down. I have to try and continue to make this thing hidden and secret. And so he hands Uriah what eventually is Uriah's own death warrant. 
You see, Uriah's out on the battlefield, and he decides, hey, I'm going to make this look like an accident. I'm going to tell Joab, the general, hey, you put Uriah in the fiercest fighting. You put it where everything, all the action is, and then you back away, and I guarantee he's going to die. And that's exactly what happens. Everybody gets word that Uriah's dead. And inside, you almost get a sense like David thinks he's won. You get a sense like you think that David gets this crazy idea that he has hidden this sin, that there's going to be no more consequences, that he has, that he has masterminded the perfect crime. But then one day somebody comes knocking. Somebody comes knocking on David's door. And it's a prophet named Nathan. Now we don't have time this morning to look at all of what Nathan says, but let's just say uh, that Nathan the prophet gives a story to David that absolutely enrages David because David was a shepherd And he says, let me tell you about some sheep. And there was this rich guy, and he came, and he stole the sheep, and he sacrificed it for himself. And David's enraged, and he says, he even calls God's name, and he says, you know, God needs to get that guy. He deserves to die. And Nathan looks David in the eye, this friend, and he looks him in the eye, And he says, you are that man. David, you are that man. You see, church, there are no sins that you can hide. You can run as far as you want. You can close as many doors as you want. You can try and shut off as many lights as you want. You can go off the beaten path as much as you possibly can. And yet there is no hiding from sin. Sin will always find you out. Why? Because God is always looking. In all of chapter 11... God's name is not mentioned outside of one time. And it happens in verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her, that's Bathsheba, brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You see, while David was done thinking about God, God had not forgotten about David. Your sins will always find you. Because God is always looking. Nathan comes and he says, you are that man. And he begins to tell David what the consequences will be. In verse 9 of chapter 12, 
Nathan's going to say, you committed adultery. You cheated on your wives. You did it in secret. And David, the consequence will be is that they will cheat on you, but it's not going to be a secret to anybody. It's going to be public. Look at what they say. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from you. Your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. If you go to chapter 16 in 2 Samuel, it becomes clear that David has a dysfunctional family and it is his son who sleeps on the roof with all of David's wives. In verse 10, it tells us you murdered this man and a sword is never going to leave you. From chapter 11 on in the rest of 2 Samuel, David's life is in a spiral, and he never quite regains the glory that he had before. Sin has consequences. Sin is serious. When we willfully disobey, it is a big deal. Now, some of you are thinking right now, I am in big trouble. And if you are, then allow me to help you find the solution. If you are thinking right now, oh man, what am I going to do? Then let me help you find another son of David. Look at verse 13 in chapter 12, would you please? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown your contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. Verse 13, after all of this has come out, after it's all hit the fan, after the truth has become known, uh, David looks at Nathan and says, I have sinned against the Lord. He repents. I haven't been looking at the Lord. I was thinking about myself, but now I am. And immediately Nathan says, God is taking away your sin." What he's saying is he is taking away your guilt. Now listen, listen. There's an important distinction here. You may still have to face the consequences of your sin in this life. One moment of sin may mean that you have consequences for a lifetime. But here's the good news about forgiveness. Here's the good news about deliverance that only God can offer you. It's forever. It's for eternity. There have been all kinds of people that have said, why in the world would God sacrifice this innocent son of David? And you know what? I don't know that I have a great answer. But I will say this. 
there's another son of David who was innocently killed, who had done nothing wrong, that demonstrates the justice and the grace of God. And his name was Jesus. He's the son of David and he is the son of God. And Jesus went to the cross because he recognized what I told you already this morning, what all of you said, that you would raise your hands and put a hand on the Bible and say, I have sinned. I've willfully disobeyed. I've knowingly done something wrong. And while you may have consequences that will follow you, you need to know that if you came in this morning and you are stuck in a sin, or if you're thinking about a sin, or you're thinking about an affair, or you're thinking about lying, or you're thinking about cheating, or you're thinking simply about disobeying God in some unknown way, that this morning, for you and for David... There is a son of David who innocently went to a cross and he died for you so that you can be forgiven forever from your sin. So that God himself can look you in the eye and God can say to you, your sins have been forgiven because you know Jesus. If you came in and you're thinking, oh, I, I've known temptation. I've known disobedience. Then can I tell you this morning that there is only one who can offer you the kind of forgiveness that is forever? And that's Jesus he is a son of David, and he had done nothing wrong. He had never sinned. And he went to the cross. He went to a cross. It was a cruel, ugly torture device. And they hung him on it. But the reason that he went was so that guys like David and so that people like you and me, that we have hope beyond our sin. That we can get help. That we can know that even when we've done the absolute worst thing we can imagine, that we have not fallen so far that God cannot forgive us. You know, some people puzzle that David was an adulterer and he was a murderer. And yet he was still called throughout the Bible a man after God's own heart. And perhaps you, like me, have wondered why. How can we call this guy a man after God's own heart? He killed people. He slept with a woman that wasn't his wife. He had multiple wives. What's the deal? I think I know. I think the reason that he's called a man after God's own heart 
is that unlike his predecessor, that when David was confronted with his sin, when David was shown a mirror, he immediately repented. And so church, you may be in a place this morning that you desperately need to come back to Jesus. You need to come back to God. You need to turn around. You need to stop doing what you're doing. And you need to live for Jesus. It's great, isn't it? After all of this agony, David is able to write in Psalm 51, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the blood guilt, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper to build up the walls of Jerusalem and then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Create in us, Lord, a pure heart. And Lord, may you do that in our church. Church, let's know the consequence of sin. Let's know the seriousness of it. And let's be warned right now to stay away. And if we're in the middle of it, let's repent. Let's come back to God and know that he can clean up even a really bad mess. Will you stand with me, please? And let's sing together.